This episode of The Call Sheet is brought to you by Plot Devices. Creators of the Story Clock Notebook. You've probably got a lot of cool story ideas because you are a genius. But turning your ideas into actual stories can be a frustrating and lonely process. That's why Plot Devices created the Story Clock Notebook. It's purpose-built for breaking and outlining stories using the simple method of visualizing your story like a clock. Whether you're writing a screenplay, blog post, or ransom note, learn more about how to make writing less gross at plotdevices.co. That's plotdevices.co. .co and get 20% off your first order with the code DIRECTOR20. Welcome everybody to this episode of The Call Sheet. I'm your host, filmmaker AJ Wedding. Flipping through my old call sheets to find fun and inspiring guests from the TV and film industry. This episode's a little late coming out as I was asked by a previous guest, Mr. Sci-Fi, Mark Zickery, to direct a second unit of his show Space Command, which as a sci-fi fan was incredibly fun and challenging at the same time. I'll be posting some shots on Instagram as soon as he gives me the green light. Today I'm sitting down with visual effects supervisor Ian Hunter, who won Academy Awards for his work on Christopher Nolan's Interstellar and Damien Chazelle's First Man just last year. At one time he was my boss another my creative partner on a film, and always one of my mentors. How long have we known each other? Good question. Uh, I know that when we had our studio, New Deal Studios in Marina del Rey, you'd come down and talk to us about working on your project, uh, Junior Crew. So that's when we first met, and we've known each other since then. So that's 10? That's a lot of gray. Yeah, that's a lot. Of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were we both had darker hair then. Yes. Uh, I don't know if it's in years, but I, I, I measure it in, in pounds. I think that was probably seven pounds ago. No, not for me. Uh, 30 pounds. Okay, yeah. I, I already had some on there. The longest, the longest gestation period of a human being, uh, something like 20 years. Well, that was a great day for me. I remember that because Jillian Stein, I think, had known... Mm-hmm one of your partners, Shannon Gans, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, and said, hey, you know, this might be a good project for us to collaborate on and, and maybe get New Deal interested in being a vendor. And I remember coming in there nervous because, you know, we basically had somebody else tell us to go kick a can down the street. And uh, I don't think they read it or they knew, hmm. knew anything about it. It was just like, yeah, no, no thanks. Uh, and when we walked in, like, you guys had read it and you liked it and you wanted to be more than just a vendor. It was so exciting because my whole life I've, I've loved visual effects and uh, I've always, you know, of course being a sci-fi fan, everything I want to do has visual effects in it. Uh, so just to be in your studio and see all the amazing things that you guys have done was crazy. Yeah, well, you know, it's nice to work on nice movies for nice people. Uh, we're... Both my partners and I got into this because we love the art and we love the sort of challenge of coming together as a group and creating something. And there's a, you know, there's this blank screen, there's this this page, and you can all interpret what's written down there uh, individually. But to be able to take that and then make something with a group of people who have the same goal, which is to make something great and put it on the screen... And then shoot it, and then that exists, you know, for well, at least it'll be around for our lifetimes. Uh, that's just an amazing thing, and it's an amazing uh, privilege to be able to work in this business and do that. And then what's great is to run into people who are that enthusiastic. And so, 
as artists, we always want to encourage each other and push each other along to be creative and to, and to get what they want on the screen and try to be uncompromising and, and owning a business is, is very difficult. It's really hard to do. And, you know, you have uh, overhead, you've got crew to deal with. Uh, my partners always talk about how dealing with artists, they're adults, but it's like adult daycare center where you have to like make sure they can play together. If they start getting crabby with each other, you separate them and give them toys and stuff like that. And that's how it is to, to run a business. And so we really appreciate when somebody wants to go and make the effort to make something from scratch. It, we've been there. We understand their, their point of view. And we appreciated that you wanted us to be collaborators with you, um, that you had this vision. And then you said, here, this is what I want to do. Do you think you can be part of this and, and run into it? And, and, you know, I'll be honest with you. I've been, I've read like horror slasher scripts and people are like, Hey, you want to do this? I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> this is like sort of low ball, uh, sort of creepy stuff. I don't really want to deal with that. Uh, but, but I liked you and I liked, I liked your, your material. And I liked that it had a, a good message and it, and it was interesting. And, you know, so, so I think that's what happens. You get a rare opportunity in this business to come across people that you enjoy working with and, Hopefully you can find a time to do it. I know we haven't actually worked together yet, but uh, but that'll happen. So technically, yeah, on that particular movie, yeah. it was just uh, we're still trying to get the hell going. Yeah, money's always the, uh, the fun part of the business. Yeah, what's up with that? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so, Ian is also a filmmaker himself, mm -hmm. a director, and he's got his own projects he's trying to get going. And of course, whatever you need from me, I'm I'm there because that's that's how it works. Um, Pretty much everybody on this podcast kind of has that mentality. Yeah. We love the filmmaking process, and we all just want to do it. It's funny because I've worked on, you know, low-budget and bigger-budget shows, of course, and uh, my partners had the opportunity to direct a couple of, of Westerns, actually. And when I went to see what he did directing these Westerns, and I helped out a little bit, you know, by the time, if, you, if you're really careful, you can actually take very little money, and stretch that and get a lot of production value out of it and have, you know, in his case, guys on horses and, and stagecoach robberies and gunfights and, you know, Western towns and the whole thing. And it had this really great uh, production value to it that he was able to pull from uh, very little resource. And what's funny is there's a recent movie came out. I'm not going to say what the name of the movie is. It involves some brothers who are not sisters, but, that movie was all, I love that movie, but then I found out what the budget was and I thought, okay, it's two guys on horseback riding through the woods. How can this movie be that expensive when I've seen this other Western get done with train robberies and gunfights and, you know, the Buffalo soldiers coming over the hill in the sunset, you know, all this like great production value that can be done for less money. So you and I, the thing that was that, you know, we were sort of going for was let's maximize our, our means. Let's get what we can and then stretch as far as we can to get it to really good production value with a good story. You know, it's a funny thing. Everybody talks about like how to make the thing, but like you want to start with a good idea, obviously. For sure. Um, and then, and then stretch it from there. So that's the thing about the money that's sort of frustrating is, is that there's money being spent. And for some of the, the, cost for some of these shows 
you and I could make a dozen movies <laughs> of comparable quality. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Um, so I just, I just, we got to keep, you know, plowing ahead and, and trying to find that, that means. Cause you know, for those who are listening out here who have checkbooks, uh, <laughs> believe me, we can, we can make it work. We can stretch it. And, you know, coming from a visual effects background and coming from a, a co-owner of a company, you know, we're entrusted with lots of money from the studios to create a scene. And the reason we've been able to go on for as long as we have and be continually trusted to get, you know, be uh, given these projects is because we deliver. And that's the that's the tricky thing. If you don't deliver, you get a reputation. You don't sure. you get hired again. So so when you came down to the studio and you saw the stuff that we worked on and, you know, we've been very fortunate to have worked on some really great projects for some really great uh, directors that's because we have integrity and we want to, you know, take what they're providing us and, and deliver. And well, the look you always yeah. get is just so realistic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously you've got tons of awards for it. And I think that day that we came down there, you had either just blown up the building from inception <laughs> or you were about to. And uh, I, it must have been after because I would have been like, can I please be oh. <laughs> I remember just looking at some of the... Oh, that day. Yeah. It's like the hippos, you know, you know, sticking out of the mud, like, it's Wednesday. You know, it's, a, <laughs> it's just another day of blowing up a huge building. Yeah, yeah in the middle of, uh, uh, what is it, the Culver City, right? Uh, yeah, it was, it was Maria, Maria Del Rey. Del Rey right. Yeah, and, uh, and what was funny is that, for, for those of you who don't know, so... Our studio was in Marina del Rey, and it was an industrial district for the longest time. And it had actually been built as a studio. I think it was Todd A.O. Yeah. Uh, built it. So the, so here down this residential street on one side, and the other side is all industrial, is this studio. And it, we didn't put a big sign out front. We didn't want people to know we were there. But it technically was studio and had studio status. And so theoretically, we could shoot all night long, and no one could do anything about it. And that included blowing things up. So... <laughs> We built the model for Inception, which was this huge 47-foot-tall tower. We called it the Fortress Hospital. And it was all this breakaway building that was really big, and it was on top of a mountain. And that was all built in our parking lot. But the time we were building it, they were also building a five-story condo next to us, right up against our fence. And so it's sort of terrible for those people moving into the condo. It's like, you do understand that the people next door, it's a film studio and they do special effects and they blow things up. And that's what they do. And they, you can't do anything about it. So that was, that was too bad for them. But, um, but yeah, so we built that, um, that big building for Inception. And Shannon, my partner, described what we do. And, and the building from Inception is sort of... Uh, uh, quintessential version of this which is we build these Fabergé eggs because it's breakaway so it's 47 feet tall but it has to be durable enough to stand in the weather outside to photograph but weak enough for us to blow it apart and have it collapse and so there's a lot of engineering involved in that and I think that's the thing that I think is sort of lost uh, on people is that the art is the ability to bring in people from different backgrounds carpenters sculptors painters and then engineers electricians pyrotechnicians and all of them working together to come up with this 
this uh, this event. It's essentially a magic trick, you know. I mean, yeah. To the audience, that's what they're seeing. We are magicians, not <laughs> wizards. Let me say that again. You have to tell me. That. <laughs> right. <laughs> but no, it, it really is. Um, it's a fascinating part of the business. I think a lot of people um, are enamored by it. You know, I always mm-hmm. have been, and you know, just to not to get crazy technical, but even just the idea that you guys know. You know, look, if you're going to blow something up, you can't do it at, you know, G.I. Joe scale. It's got to be at a certain scale mm-hmm. in order for the fire to actually you know, react. To, to, to be honest, it was classic G.I. Joe scale. <laughs> <laughs> not, not the little guys, but the bigger ones with there the fur know, and the, the rubber. Yeah, the 12-inch ones with the rubbery hands. Um, but uh, but you're correct. Yeah, there's 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 an art to it that is that is brought upon by just experience. Uh, I also was very fortunate to have great teachers when I got into the business. I sort of fell backwards in it. Okay. I want to go back to how you got in the business. Oh boy. Uh, Why you got, did you grow up here or where'd you grow up? Uh, Yeah. I'm one of those very rare things, which is a native Los Angelino, uh, grew up uh, in Los Angeles. I was born in Torrance of all places. And then uh, grew up in what I call the other Valley, which is the San Gabriel Valley, not the San Fernando Valley. So uh, yeah, so I've been I've been here all my life. Uh, you can tell by my pale skin and aversion to the beach that I'm a native <laughs> Californian. And um, I uh, my family is all artist, which is really weird. So I have two brothers and my mom and dad when I was growing up, and I was the youngest. And my dad was an artist. He was a fine artist and interior decorator and musician and did all this stuff. And he actually worked for the studios many years ago, but had had nothing to do with my being uh, getting into it. But he worked for Fox in the scenic department for a, a while. And then uh, he quit that and just started running his own business uh, doing interior decorating. Anyway, I thought growing up, I had a love for aircraft and mechanical things. And I thought maybe I'd be an aerospace engineer. So I had no idea I'd be in the movie business whatsoever. And I sort of went down that track a little bit when I got out of uh, school. I went and went to college, but that didn't work out. I, sort of dropped out did you build models as a kid uh, i did build models as a kid i think my you know having three sons i think my dad is sort of to uh to get us out of his hair would like get us model <laughs> kits right and so my brothers you know love building the models too and and their thing was to you know once they got them built was to put firecrackers in them and blow the blow them up which is you know what all kids do and i was like no I put a lot of time into this. It's got seat belts in it, and you know, it's it's very accurate. And uh, this is what the SAS used when they were going ac- uh, across the desert and fighting the Germans and stuff. And you know, so I had a, I, I took a different tack. I, I really got interested in the subject matter, and it, it really, uh, models were sort of uh, a gateway to understanding history and and development stuff like it's very weird because the you know, instruction forms always come you, can, you know they show you how to build a model but there's always like a whole page on the history of the of the of the airplane or the history of the tank or the history of the ship or whatever and i always read those and it really got me interested in history so uh i saw models as a as sort of an example of human development and uh so it always got me interested in building models but i built models as a kid and i guess i was pretty good and I never thought that would actually lead to any sort of career. And then I, like I said, went, went in aerospace. That didn't pan out. Ended up working at a company that made models for aerospace companies. So I guess I started, like, f- slowly falling into the into that realm. And 
that didn't work out. Uh, I got fired from that job, uh, which is sort of heartbreaking. And I ended up working at a place, needed a job right away. So it was this place that made polyethylene tanks for uh, acid baths for photo etching circuit boards. You follow me here? So circuit boards, like there's copper on them and you got to dip them in acid uh, with the resist to get rid of the excess copper to make the circuit boards, right? So the only thing that will resist the acid burning through is either glass or in this case, polyethylene. So you have to make these polyethylene tanks to put acid in. So I spent my days working with plastic and smelly, horrible chemicals and it was just awful. And I saw the guys that had been there for a while and they're all walking like zombies and they're like the walking dead and they're dragging their feet. And I thought, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't stand this. So finally one day at lunch, I went and got a newspaper. It's the LA times. And literally there was a classified ad, tiny little classified. And it said, wanted model makers, major motion picture. So I'm like, okay, I built models as a kid. I built models for this aerospace company. I should be able to do this. I got to get out of this uh, working with plastics and smelly chemicals and it's going to kill me. So I called the number immediately and set up an interview. And then I went back that day after lunch and I quit. I quit my job at the at the acid bath factory. And uh, I remember the guy, his name was Bob Johnson and he was the foreman and uh, he used to play ping pong. Uh, at lunch, that was his way of dealing with things. And he came, he's like, no, you can't quit. You can't quit. And I said, I've only been here for like a week or so. He's like, no, no, you got to stay. And then he called the vice president of the company and he drove down and tried to talk me out of quitting. So I'm like, really? And I said, why do you want me to stay so much? Cause I've, you know, like I've, I don't have much experience. And I just started, he says, you're the only guy that knows how to use a tape measure. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, sorry, I got to leave. So I quit, and uh, next week uh, on a Monday or what, I go to this interview, this model company that you know, major motion picture, and I meet this guy, and uh, I sit there and I show him my portfolio, and I didn't really have much to show, and uh, you know, there's only a few models I had from the aerospace company and stuff I built as a you know as a kid or a, uh, a teenager, so it's not a great portfolio, but I thought I did a pretty good job with what I had. And he's like, great, you can start tomorrow. I'm like, fantastic. I, I must have impressed this guy amazingly. Uh, boy, I'm going to be a Hollywood filmmaker's model maker. So the next day I show up and I got my little toolbox and I'm uh, working away. And I'm just so excited because I'm now in the movie business. And there's a girl next to me and she's working away on models. And there's a guy next to me and he's working away on models. And I'm, I'm working away and I'm thinking, wow, I'm a real professional model maker. So I asked the girl, her name's Mary. And I said, Mary, how long have you been building models? And she said, this is my first model building job. Like, really? She says, yeah, I'm a CalArts student. They just hired me off the street because they need somebody. Like, oh, okay. But I'm a build model make, you know, big model maker in the Hollywood business. So I'll ask this model maker guy. He looks like he's a professional next to me. And he's this really good looking kid with blonde hair and blue eyes and like just chiseled features, tight body. And, uh, I said, hey, what's your name? How long have you been a model maker in the model making film business? And he says, I am Dimitri. I am ballet dancer from Russia, literally off the boat. This is my first job. I do not know how to build models. And I thought, okay, I'm not that special, I guess. I'm just, <laughs> I do have a tape measure. So they came to me. It's like, can you know a tape measure? Actually, you know, the other thing I was, I was really good at was in high school, uh, the guys would always have us 
in wood shop, you know, you build things out of wood, and then they give you acrylic, acrylic plastic. And I knew how to get the, uh, the the glue on there and wet both surfaces and clamp it so you got no air bubbles in there, right? That was my big thing. But the other thing I f- they found that I was really good at was all the guys who smoked pot, I was the only guy I could drill two holes at right angles to each other that met in the middle so they could make their pipes. So they couldn't handle it. They couldn't do it. So I was, I ended up being the default guy that got to do the, uh, it's all about relationships. it is. Yeah. <laughs> that man became, <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, so I'm here, I am working, building models. Like, uh, this is horrible. What like, was the movie? Oh, by the way. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a bad movie to get introduced into, into the film business. It was the abyss. Oh, I was building models for the abyss and, uh, that was kind of cool. Jimmy Geechee and I built this engine room model for the abyss that was going to get flooded. And it was a great introduction because when I came in there and I said, well, we want you to build this model. Cameron's given us the dimension, 10 feet long, five feet wide, three feet tall. I said, okay, is there any drawings? No, that's just the dimensions he thinks will work. Okay. So what do we do from here? Well, you have to come up with what goes in there. All right. So to me, I thought that was normal, wow. you know, just, be just be creative. Yeah. So Jim and I looked at photographs of engine rooms and we came up with this design and Cameron wanted to make sure there was a walkway down the middle because he wanted to see guys running out of it and closing the hatch and all this stuff. So there were a couple of, you know, sort of very cryptic written descriptions of what it needed to be and the rest was fill it in. And so we did, and we're, you know, to sort of start off with that, I thought it was, you know, a nice model. That's how it is. Oh, you get to be creative and stuff. And it was sort of a cool experience, and I'm still very proud of that model. Proud, I guess, because uh, it really worked. We shipped it off to South Carolina where they shot it, so I never got to follow up with what how it got shot at all. And funny enough, the guys that ended up receiving it on that end in South Carolina where it was photographed, I would work with years later, Mm. funnily, funnily enough, funnily, is that a word? (laughs) Uh, Strangely enough. And and there was a sort of a, it would be terrible, but there was a bad reputation coming out of some of the models that were coming out of that that, uh, job. And that were failing, that were, yeah, that were sort of failing. And so I felt bad because I'm like, okay, I'm, am I going to be associated with these failed models that were coming out of that, that experience? But later on, when I met with the, uh, particularly with one of the supervisors about that particular job, uh, he said, oh no, that model was fine. That model, like that model worked, that model, you know, we, there was one thing we had to change on it, um, which I told the owner needed to be done that way. He says, but other than that, you know, it worked really well and we were really happy with it. So I felt sort of vindicated and good that at least we'd made the right judgment, uh, Jim and I, when we built it to, uh, to get it done. So I then booked out of there, a friend of mine called and said, you should go to Boss Film, which is, was in uh, Maria Del Rey. Mm-hmm. Strangely enough, Boss was on the corner for my studio was in Maria Del Rey. <laughs> so... Um, so he called and he said, you know, you got to go down here. Uh, they've got a commercial going. They pay better than where you are now. So I I would never leave in the middle of, you know, just quit on someone. So I completed the engine room miniature, uh, made sure that went out the door. Um, and so when I was, you know, free of that, that's I went over to Boss. And I worked over there on a commercial. And then um, started working on a thing called Big Eye which was the Back to the Future ride. Hmm. 
but not the one that you see, not the one you would see at Universal, because Universal made a whole Back to the Future ride, and then they scrapped it all because it was, yeah, they, yeah, it was uh, Boss Film made it, and it was, you know, it it gone all the way. We shot everything in in uh, big format, and tons of miniatures used on it. And then once they cut it together, Universal just thought creatively it wasn't what it needed to be. So they scrapped the whole thing and started over again and used uh, Doug Trumbull's Mass Illusion company. Um, I think it was Mass Illusion or whatever he, his company was on in um, on the East Coast. So it's kind of sad because a lot of us put a lot of work into that and built this thing. Yeah, plus the new version, it, it, I don't know if you ever wrote it, but it really hurts your back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think the, I think it was the infancy of, of motion base. Yeah. Uh, uh, rides and so they didn't really understand that you know you needed to follow what was happening on the screen so they just thought just you just shook the chair a lot you know there's sort of it's it's a hydraulic like a goomba guy with just like shaking your chair that's all it is right you know yeah it's kind of terrible that way um people come out and their the brains are all rattled you know you get the the sort of macro shot from uh from Three Kings, you know, where you see the brain sort of shaking in the skull. Um, yeah, so that that's that's that was that. But uh, but I was working on that. I was working on on Big Eyes. We called it the, the code name for it for the ride that never, was never to be seen. And I was working on this cave, the with this T Rex at the end, this amazing T Rex. Yeah, we had our own T Rex also. And Spoiler alert. oh, sorry, <laughs> it swallows you swallows the delorean time machine and my boss uh at boss film uh my supervisor was a guy named mark stetson and mark uh had left when uh we started big eye to start his own company separately and he came up to the then supervisor at boss and talked whispered in his ear i'm like okay what's happening over here and then mark he sort of gets this nod from the supervisor and then mark walked over to me and he said uh, could you work for me for a week? And basically what he was asking was permission to see if they could, if the new supervisor would allow me to leave for a week to go work on a job for Mark. I said, sure, that'd be great. Well, that week, I never came back. I went, never never went back to boss. It was six years. <laughs> that week became six years working for Mark Stetson and uh, his partner, Bob Spurlock. And uh, I guess that was fortuitous again because mark was fantastic at his job and he was sort of the the considered the best at his particular uh, niche of visual effects which was miniatures at the time and that's half the battle right like working with people that you like and that you respect yeah. what they do i mean that's everything really right yeah i could have gone the other path i could have got you know there's many there's many charlatans out there that could have like fallen into into uh work with but uh, this is me you know this is sort of sounds terrible uh but why not you got two oscars ian so you can you can talk that way um by the way they're right here yeah exactly <laughs> oh you kids stop stop fighting amongst yourselves you i love you both equally um, I yeah, I know it is. So the BAFTA is like all crying. <laughs> I don't even have a nameplate. <laughs> exactly. You know, one talks about the BAFTA, the VES award. Um, 
<laughs> yes, I do have lots of uh, lots of heavy paperweights I can use at home. I think the most the most I think thrilling award I've ever gotten was I was working for for uh, Stetsons for six years, and somewhere along the way we had a wrap party, and I don't know what compelled Mark to do this, but he decided we should have a bowling party. So so at the end of the year we all show up, and we're going bowling at this bowling alley that he rented. And, uh, and then afterwards, uh, I, I was very touched. I actually won the most elegant bowler award. So I, yeah, <laughs> not highest score, just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was certainly the, the, the most elegant bowler. So that's probably next to the Oscars, but. What movies did you work on with Mark? Uh, uh, yeah, that was kind of, you know, little things, little, I'm kidding. Um. So Mark brings brings me over to his house, and he said, "You know, I want you to work a week with me." And of course, it turned into a bit longer. But the job that he wanted me to start with was a music video for Kenny Rogers yeah. called "Planet Texas." And uh, if you remember this thing, but it was like it was Planet Texas, and Kenny Rogers was trying to like get back into it and be popular again. And so it's this country song. But it's Planet Texas, and they they travel from Texas to Mars, and it, it's it's really sort of horrible. But uh, it was fun, but it was like just horrible. And uh, so I thought, okay, fine, we'll do this, and we'll work our butts off to make Planet Texas. But then Mark brought me over his house, and he said, you know, I know we're doing this Planet Texas thing, but and he opens this drawer, and in it is this artwork. And it's sketches by uh, Ron Cobb and Steve Berg. I don't know if you know Ron Cobb or Steve Berg are, but Ron Cobb and Steve Berg are both concept artists that have been around for a, a long time. Ron Cobb worked on the original Alien mm-hmm. and uh, De- uh, Dark Star. I think he actually designed the Dark Star. And um, and Steve Berg uh, actually worked on the Abyss and. Uh, and then I had these sketches, and there were sketches for a movie called Total Recall, which is the Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, movie. But this was before it was made, and this is just the concept art for it. So Mark opens the drawer and says, do you want to work on this? And I said, what is it? It's a movie about Mars. He's like, oh, yeah, it might be fun. So it was Total Recall, and and that was the thing. He had gotten the, the, the work for the miniatures for the Schwarzenegger Total Recall. So, of course, I said, yeah, I'll work on it. So that was one of the first movies uh, that we worked on at Stetson Visual. It might have been an actual first film that we worked on when we took over and started a new uh, studio space in Los Angeles. We were near the airport, literally a block from Randy's Donuts, the famous donut (laughs) shop that you can see from the 405 freeway, the giant concrete donut, which explains 15 pounds of, of... of my weight yeah exactly 15 pounds ago um so we started this this uh the the studio there and we started total recall and i was the i I, was really nice because it it, it was over a year of of work off and on on total recall because we had to do uh we call it rp work for that movie so the first thing we had to do there's a scene on an elevator in the movie where arnold's fighting um michael ironside and it's on an elevator that's going up this alien artifact that's underground. So because it was rear projection, they needed the backgrounds mm. before they shot the live action. So 
upfront loading of the visual effects. So right up front, we had to build this model and photograph it with the backgrounds and then send that to Mexico where they were shooting live action. And then we did the other models that were going to be shot in post. So one of the first jobs was to build that background and shoot that. And I ended up being the poor sucker that was on stage. I had to do the standby model work and, you know, fix the lights and touch with the paint and all that stuff. So I was the first guy on to shoot the miniatures for Total Recall. And then the last model I think we shot was, uh, if you've seen the movie, is this pullback where they've added oxygen to Mars and the people walk out and, and uh, like, finally able to breathe. The dome out there and all that. The, was, it the, was the dome part of that? The, uh, it was. It, the windowed dome? Or was that it was a, yeah, the, there's a window that gets blown out. So we shot these windows blowing out. And there's finally this one big window got blown out. And then the people are walking out of the window onto a ledge and you pull back and you see this canyon of buildings, but it's now got blue skies and it's it's amazing view or whatever. So that was the last model we shot. And I was the guy on standby for that too. So I was the first guy on and the last guy off on that show, but it took, over, you know, took place over like about a year or whatever. So the total recall was one of the jobs. And in between total recall, we did Dick Tracy, uh, which is also sort of cool. And uh, got to work on that, and uh, I think that was my first credit. Actually, was on Dick Tracy, so that was a really cool job. And it's a great style to that piece, so colorful. And yeah, it's it's funny because uh, Michael Lloyd was the uh, supervisor on that show, and he came down to our our uh, studio to Stetson's while we were building the models, and we built primarily. Um, there's a train scene where there's a, a train that goes by and the kid jumps across the tracks and all that. So we built that train. That was eighth scale. It was a really big set. And then we also built the bridge at, at the end of the movie where the uh, bridge opens up and the boat goes through and there's the fight inside there. So that's the primary stuff that we did. But I remember Michael Lloyd coming down and we were asking about colors. And, and we said, well, what color do you want this to be? What color do you want the building to be? What color do you want that? What colors should the ironwork be? And he's looking around, and we had a 7-Up machine. He says, okay, uh, the 7-Up Coke machine, green. That's the green. Um, your forklift, that yellow. Let's use that yellow. Uh, that guy's toolbox, that red. Let's use that. And they, all these primary colors. And I thought, what the hell? It's like these are just like super bright primaries. And he wants us to paint the models like that. How? But then you see the movie, and it's all primaries. Like you said, it was the style was as if you were reading a comic strip, and so it was all primaries. You know, I'm amazed they didn't put like Rosetta marks yeah, on right. the actors <laughs> to uh, to make them blend in. But you know, using that using that style and realizing that it's about style and it's about artistic endeavor. You know, it, it, right. and vision. yeah, yeah. And so the, th the stuff that we built with all these bright colors fit the 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 style and the and the look. Huh? Yeah. Well, one one once you know once we sort of saw what else they were doing, uh, and then it made perfect sense. Sure. Um, but I remember that. Uh, that job it's sort of you know a model's never finished it's just scrapped i guess you know they always talk about a movie like an edit yeah an edit, an edit, an edit's never finished it's just it's just given up but i remember building the bridge and i had a small crew working on the on the bridge model and 
it's sitting there and we've painted it. And then uh, one of my other teachers, a guy named Tom Valentine, was showing me how you could take a couple of Prismacolors and add rivets. And like one rivet was the shadow and the other rivet, uh, the other color was for the, the highlight, right? So I'm literally sitting there and, uh, hello. And, um, and I'm drawing rivets on the side of this thing. And there's hundreds and hundreds of rivets on this 16 foot long model. I'm trying to draw them and I'm concentrating and my face is like four inches away from the surface. And I'm drawing all this stuff on there. And then suddenly the model just starts moving. And I'm like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I, I was like starting to lose my mind. I thought I was getting disoriented because it just started sliding past me. And I couldn't figure it out. And I looked back and there were four guys picking it up, putting it on a truck. We had to ship it, you know, and I was still working on it. I could, like, no, it's not, my baby's not done, but it, it had to go out the door and get shot. And that was another good lesson too, which is, uh, Mark taught me, which is what we build, they don't, they're not precious. They're, they're a means to an end, which is, you know, you build a model, you photograph it. Uh, if you need to cut a hole in it to get a camera in, that's what you do. If you need to, you know, whatever, whatever it takes to get the image, because the image is the important thing. And what we do is, is by the means of the end. So people have asked me in the past, because I've built and blown up a lot of things, or I've had crews build and blow up a lot of things, the uh, Inception Towers, for instance, and also like the, the garbage truck from uh, uh, Dark Knight, and uh, F-35 jet from uh, Die Hard 4. And, oh yeah <laughs> yeah the one we didn't blow up we still we, we kept hanging but the point is you know you build these things and you blow them up and then people see you put all this detail into them you put all this meticulous work and rivets and panel lines and and all this and the paintwork and everything and like don't you feel bad when you blow it up and i was like well it was built to be blown up it's it's karma i feel bad if i don't blow it up you know right i mean that's it it, it lives to die yeah right <laughs> Yeah. Well, or celluloid, because funny enough, um, uh, I will say uh, there are still some directors who like to shoot on film. And, um, well, and you guys have had the luxury of being able to work with several of them yeah. on their last films. There's Martin Scorsese, Chris Nolan. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to think of who else. Are you, oh, you. Uh, uh, Damien Chazelle on First Man was uh, also shot on film. And, uh, oh, oh, there was a movie that, uh, well, it took place in Hollywood at one time. I worked on that movie. <laughs> that filmmaker also shoots on film. Yes. Don't they, I think together, don't they all own Kodak at this point? I think, yeah, they put in money to keep Kodak going to keep, uh, them stocked. So, uh, funny enough, we worked, uh, a small bit on a Paul Anderson movie. Uh, well, Paul Thomas Anderson. Let me let me straight that out. Paul Thomas Anderson. We worked a little bit on a Paul Thomas Anderson movie some years ago, so we shot that on film too. And we've worked on all the Paul W. S. Anderson movies also. <laughs> so we've gotten to work with both Paul Andersons in that regard. Um, well, and this might be a little uh, too shop talky, but isn't it still sort of the case? I mean, I've, I've worked with some of the newer cameras mm -hmm. now, the Sony Venice, which is really amazing with um, the light value you can get out of it, but. For the most part, even with uh, the highest technology digital cameras, when you're blowing something up, you almost still always need film, right? I mean, it's for the highs and lows. Yeah, it's interesting you mention that because we worked uh, when we were in the Marina area, and then we were there for 16 years, and then we moved to a lovely Silmar, California, where we had another studio for a while. Which was beautiful. The, the studio 
inside. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> right. <laughs> Keep the, the tumbleweeds and the coyotes out. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's nothing like watching a cowboy riding his horse in Silmar on his cell phone. Very funny. But we actually did a movie or uh, a TV show called Black Sails. And the supervisor came to us. He had come from a film and practical background, uh, Eric Henry, and he knew the value of these things. So on Black Sails, there were a few things they wanted to do for the opening show, of uh, a, a fortress crumbling and some cannonball hits and things like that. And he thought, well, you know, we could do these all digitally, but what if we just shot them practically and comp them in? Maybe we can get a lot of benefit out of that. Uh, he knew the benefit of shooting uh, practical effects outdoors. So he came to us and asked us to do these elements. And they have a ton of money for the show. And they'd shot on Alexas. And uh, so we gave them the budget. And the and the budget was, you know, just going over what they really had. And part of it was the cost of, of having the Alexas. And so we said, well, we get reds. And again, the thing is like, well, reds aren't going to give you the same range uh, that you can get from the Alexas. Sure. And because we're shooting high speed photography miniatures, you know, we don't want to get anything clipping, you know, because once when you start using digital cameras and you start to go high speed, you end up using less of the of the uh, sensor, so you end up getting lower quality images. And so there was this constant fight. Right. So 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 finally my producer uh, David said, "Well, we could shoot it on film." And Eric was like, wait a minute, really? And it's like, yeah, let's think about it. We can get Mitchell cameras dirt cheap because no one shoots on film anymore. <laughs> uh, we can get the film. So the only thing is, you know, you have to pay for the film stock. But all you need to do is develop it. You don't even need to run prints because once you develop it, you just scan it and you'll have the material. But we can shoot high speed. We won't lose any quality. In fact, we'll have better quality than even what we would have gotten uh, with the Alexis in terms of, of uh, the image. So we end up shooting on film for the effects for black sales uh and it actually was was less expensive you know there was an odd instance sure. where that where it actually worked out so i've you know shot on all sorts of different formats and um you know I, i'm i'm an advocate for the best quality of course and always. um and sometimes you get into that run in with the with high-speed photography i mean it's not as bad now but when the phantoms first came out it was like you know, flip a coin whether you whether it recorded the, the image or not on the flip side there are some photosonics film cameras that i've used that used to run well they don't they, they're broken now but you know they use the ester stock which is a polyester based stock that would you know could take the speed and most of the camera assistants i've worked with on using those particular high speed photosonics cameras say well the film's going to break period i mean just it's going to break the question is whether you've got the shot before it breaks or you've got the shot after it breaks. Right. But it's going to break. We end up using one of those cameras for the title scene for The Dark Knight. So the fireballs that all come up. We shot that We shot that off of a like a 100-foot tall uh, condor with the camera up there pointing down at the ground. And then we had shot at night and we had buckets full, of, literally full of, of uh, gasoline and other other. Uh, chemicals in there and set that off and got this incredible roiling fireball that came up and engulfed the flame or engulfed the camera in flames and sure enough the the film broke but after we got the shot so no, that's good. and 
it you know it jammed it jammed the mechanism so much it would like just become this sort of encased in plastics you know so when the camera system opened it, it was just this solid mass of film in there but the shot part had actually gotten into the exposed portion of the uh, mag so that was the last time that camera was used i remember years, years ago when um led lights were really first starting mm -hmm. to become a thing a lot of dps were against them because they still have green in them and stuff like that and um, I was working for a company that made some of them, and so we wanted to prove or disprove whether or not these particular lights had the green. Uh, and everybody said, well, you know, shot with digital, they go, well, but it does it on film. Well, if you shoot with film, they go, well, it does it on digital. So we uh, we got a, a dolly out, and we did a double dragon. We had a film camera on mm. this one and an Alexa on this one. And basically, everything was the same setup-wise. And, you know, the look was pretty much the same. The thing that I found interesting was, because it had been several years since I had ever shot film, was how much you had to do to get the film camera to work. Oh, right. You know, it's like once once you just get used to this, like, oh, I just press this button and I do this. And it's like, then you go back to this and you're like cranking this thing and you got to move it. You know, it's like, wow, what we used to have to do. I mean, there was a great value to the, the newer technology as well. It's just like, you know, like you said, what's the best quality for that particular shot? But I've, you know, I've run into that too, where where it's like, well, you know, the film is so much better quality, and like, you know, the the uh, digital stuff doesn't look so great. And it's like, well, but it will, it can. Mm -hmm. What I've found is not so much the setting up the camera, because the camera is, you know, amazing that it has such latitude, digital world. But you can't cheat the lighting. Mm -hmm. That's the thing I found is like, there's so many people come in, it's like, well, we don't really need this much exposure. We don't need it, you know, we can do it with ambient light, we can do it with existing light and stuff like this. You can do that. Or you can like pay attention and and treat it and light it like you. I don't want to say like exactly like a film camera would be needed to be photographed, but you need to respect the lighting. Well, the lighting when, is part of the cinematography. Yeah, you're painting a picture with every right. frame, so you should pay attention. To that. And if you do that, you're you're you get fantastic results. I mean, right. uh, I, I I love Chivo's work. I think he's amazing, and he did this amazing hat trick by winning three Oscars back to back. So. But, you know, he uses digital cameras. He's the same digital cameras that other people have used. And I'm like, well, but his stuff looks fantastic, <laughs> you know. And it is natural lighting a lot of the time. You know, it's like, so obviously in the right hands, the right tool can be, can turn out amazing sure. uh, images. It's still an art form. You're yeah. still having to, yeah. Yeah. Sure. And there's some cheats you can do, but but you need to respect what you're doing and, and, and realize what the capability is of the device you've got and it's so funny the, the film industry in general it's it's such a interesting confluence of science art and business <laughs> and it's like if one of the thing fails you you don't have a movie and, and it's so funny because you get this very strong business personality the art can go away our part's not it's the least important you get the strong business personality who's like Look, this camera is so sensitive. We mm -hmm. need lights, and then you've got the artist. Going, yeah, yeah, but you need light to paint the picture. You know, it's like, you know, trying to figure out uh, all of those things together. And if, if one of them is off, then you either don't have a good movie, or the movie doesn't sell and be seen by anybody. So, you know, it's such a crazy thing. Yeah, it's funny because uh, a couple of the last few jobs I've done, particularly First Man, where we shot. A lot of that against, I say we, I mean, live action was shot against a giant LED screen. Mm -hmm. 
big curved 30 foot tall 60 foot wide led screen that was set up and it goes back to the the rear projection issue with uh total recall but was the the, the issue was that that movie needed to be front loaded in terms of the visual effects because damien wanted to shoot as much in camera as he could so by having this big screen and all the images on there dneg the vfx company had to create backgrounds space backgrounds planets they started with uh, plates of skies and clouds, but then those had to be replaced and actually digital ones created for that too. So there's a lot of digital work in that movie. It's, it's sort of deceptive because there's a lot of digital um, imagery, but it's all created up front and shot in camera with the capsules or the uh, aircraft or whatever. You look at that and it's like one of these things where like, well, the director wanted to do that. So the producers like, you know, well, gave into him and they had him do this thing. And because normally the the business people want to reserve the right to control the creative aspect of it. So they sure. want to shoot against green screen so they can put it, whatever they want back in there that they decide down the road. Uh, it's a marvelous way to do it. But, <laughs> but uh, well, put. well put, yeah. But uh, but in like First Man's case, and then they also did this a little bit on, on the solo movie, was, you know, well, well, let's create the imagery beforehand. Well, that means you need to make a decision. You need to make a creative decision up front. You need to have a director who has uh, a clear idea of what he wants and can articulate that to the visual effects company and to his crew and to his DP and everybody and put that on the screen. And so it sort of takes away this creative control it puts it in the hands of the creative uh person sure but the the argument then is look you know you're paying less because now there's less posts that you have to do right i mean there's this i'm nodding my head for those at home um (laughs) yes exactly the point it's like they didn't want to do it until they realized oh wait a minute it's it saves money it's like creative decisions up front are less expensive like yeah it turns out oh that and that technology is is so key i mean just to get a little bit of information out about it um i know you used a bit of a different rig on mm-hmm. first man but the thing that uh, i demoed recently with my dp leo um was this camera system where it with that uh curved screen as your background you uh can move the camera and a 3d model that's that's being projected on that screen would then move as you move the camera so that it's tracking and showing you what you would be looking at. And so as a filmmaker, instead of staring at a green screen, you're going, oh, I see. If I do this, then that ridge is over the shoulder of this character. And on top of that, it's a screen. So it's lighting the Mm -hmm. actor. The actor can turn around and look at it and see what what planet he's on. Right. (laughs) It's, it's, yeah, I mean, when we were shooting uh, the... The landing of the lunar module, once it separates from the command module and goes down to the moon, the footage for that whole sequence was all one long background that could be played. And so the capsule was a motion base, and the two actors, uh, Corey Stoll and, and Ryan Gosling, are on board. And there's camera operators actually in that cramped uh, space with them recording their takes. And Damien was the voice of Mission Control, uh, so he was giving commands to the actors through their hearing aids, hearing aids, uh, headgear. And um, so that that was all one long take. And so they're doing everything by the book that was done for the original landing. But what would happen is Ryan would look out the window and see something. Well, the next take, the camera operator 
could play off of him because he had something to look at. He could actually look out the window again. So, so having the imagery there not only affects the performances, it affects the it affects the the camera operator, and you get different takes. You get different. It's it's a play back and forth. Yeah. Instead of just all right, I guess we'll figure this out later. Yeah. yeah. So it's it it does make a big difference in terms of of creating performances and creating uh, that creative interaction. Uh, that all departments can can be part of that process, and and here's the thing. At the end of the day, if you want to change it, you can. So that <laughs> I mean, that's you know, worst comes to worst, it's still there's still options to go back and change things. Uh, First Mazda, for instance, you know, sometimes the edge of the screen would be visible in the shot because the sh composition worked better to get back a certain distance and 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 uh, do that. So the ex in post, the images are extended or replaced or whatever. So that's doable. Um, on the model work for that, we shot everything against black, black velvet, and shot the miniature with the light. And when there's no green screens whatsoever used on the miniature photography either. Again, we're trying was to... Was like an optical printer or was that... Uh, rotoscoping is... Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's the other thing too. It's like, you know, we were shooting... We shot the miniatures in our beauty light, uh, which was a single uh, harsh uh, key light that was representing the sun and then very little fill. Uh, in fact, what was kind of fun was um, when we were in Earth orbit and we had this very reflective, shiny uh, command module for the Apollo mission. It was all covered in mylar. So we actually took a projector and projected the image of the Earth onto it. It's all distorted, but the colors are correct. And in terms of like the separation, you've got one side of the capsule has the Earth reflection, and the other side isn't blackness, you know, because it's supposed to be deep space. So we do little tricks like that that we try to do as much in camera as we could, and practical just lights. Detail, just just the fact that you were thinking it like this—that's that's the thing that I, I think um, a lot of uh, producers and maybe the business side they don't understand the thought that went into that because could you shoot it against a green screen? Sure. And then you're going to have spill everywhere because every material on the thing's reflective. Mm -hmm. And now you got to, you know, figure that out. And it just, and the detail. I'm nodding my head again. Yes. The detail is just, <laughs> uh, you and I were talking about something else like that before where it was like, you know, you don't know what you're missing if you haven't seen the real thing happen. Right. If you're trying to create something in CG. So sometimes you look at a final CG shot and you go, I don't, there's something not right mm -hmm. about this, and you don't know what it is. Yeah, I did a shot, this was years ago, on one of the uh, X-Men movies, and uh, we, we had this house that was floating, and the supervisor had come from a practical background, too. So for a few shots, he wanted us to do a model that crashed and fell down. But he did a bunch of things that it couldn't do in reality, which was anti-gravity sort of uh, effects. And so for that, we ended up using CG particles and... and uh, shingles and stuff like that to create this anti-gravity aspect of it but one thing was there was supposed to be a broken water pipe and the water was gushing up and filling the bottom of the house and uh, you're really missing this at home because i'm actually uh with my hands explaining the whole shot 
But um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and this is where we put the screen. Um, anyway, so we're doing this shot, and so we were creating the model with or the creating this model physically. And we're going to drop it and crash it, but for when it's floating, anti gravity is taken over, and it's floating up there, and the water main's broken, and we had digital water floating up and bashing against the bottom of it. And I'd shot some water, just a hose, literally being pulled up on a rope, falling down, and we flipped that over. And it wasn't so much that we wanted to use the water element that we ended up using it, but it was to create a reference for the CG artist so they could look at something that was real mm-hmm. and understand the specularity and the rate that it, that it moved and the quality of reality. Um, and to have that reference and then to be able to put it side by side, you know, really made a difference. And that was the thing, um, you look at... Uh, Life of Pi, as a for instance, you know, it's all real animals. And the guys at uh, Rhythm and Hughes, you know, they would model like a hyena and they keep animating the hyena. And eventually they had to put, you know, the, a real hyena shot at a zoo and their CG hyena side by side to sort of make sure that one was indistinguishable from the other. And once you got to that point where you couldn't tell what you're looking at. Funny enough, uh, on that same job, uh, uh, X-Men Last Stand, so we've got the house that's floating above and it crashes down. And in the in the plot, Wolverine, uh, Juggernaut, uh, Storm, and somebody else are in the house. And they get blown out of the house. So they kept promising us that they were going to shoot stunt people and give them to us as elements that we would composite them into the shot. So we're waiting for these elements of these stunt people to be shot against on wires, I guess, that we could composite in there. And weeks ago by, we wouldn't get the elements, and then we have to deliver the shots, and then we sort of find out, uh, yeah, we're not going to shoot those stunt people to give you as elements. Okay, but they still need to shoot out of the house, don't they? Like, well, could you do digital ones? So we did. We actually animated digital characters flying out. Like, so now we were mixing live action miniature work and digital work. But I told my, I told my uh, artist, I said, okay, we're going to animate them. But when we send them up the line to the studio to get approval before we composite them in, put a CG green screen behind them so, so that they think they're looking at elements of people rather than CG. Because they're going to pick the CG people apart. But if they just think that they're looking at stuntmen, they're like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, put those in. So it's a little little trick you got to do to sort of convince. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing uh John Favreau, where they were trying to convince him to use a CG Iron Man, and they had the CG Iron Man next to the real suit Iron Man, and he says, "Oh no, it doesn't look real." And it's like, "Well, yeah, well, that was the real." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you gotta, you gotta trick them sometimes. Yeah. So when, at what point, did uh, you meet Matt Gratzner and and hands, <laughs> and when did you decide to start the company? Um, so. How did New Deal Studio get started? Well, first we were used to be known as Hunter Gratzner. Uh, yes. And uh, and they'd already come up with a name, and they needed someone named Hunter, so that's why I came in. No. <laughs> uh, my partner was Matthew Gratzner and Shannon Gans, my other partner. And what had happened was I had a roommate, a guy named Adam, and uh, he was another model maker I'd, I met at Stetson's. And off and on, we'd work there, and then uh, we'd work on little jobs. And then somewhere along the way, we were no longer roommates, but then he ended up working with this guy named Matthew Gratzner, and they had a, a small company called Low Tech, and they did mostly props, custom prop work. 
And they were doing a job and they needed to get this model done very quickly and they were working out of a small space. And Adam said, well, I knew, you know, my, my friend Ian, my former roommate's a good model maker, maybe even come in and work with you. So I came in and, and just sort of freelance worked on a, a job that uh, Matthew was doing for a model. And so I got that association through my roommate. And then what had happened was Stetson had closed by then. I was now out on my own. And through a couple of connections, I ended up doing some storyboards for a movie called Broken Arrow, because I'm a storyboard artist also, in addition to everything else I do. And uh, I'm, now, I'm now drawing the storyboards. And uh, so I got this job to do some storyboards on Broken Arrow, and they'd done this scene where this bomb bay rotates and launches these atomic missiles out of uh, this stealth bomber as a fight is going on between Christian Bale and consummate actor i'm sorry yeah that would have been a different movie (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) well you're a good pilot but i'm gonna tell you i don't want you you know at all don't stop adjusting the lighting anyway uh yeah john travolta and christian slater how could i have done that poor christian slater anyway it's a fun movie and uh so we got to work on that movie, and they wanted me to storyboard this scene with this Bombay scene that's taking place, and they had shot it, and it didn't work out because the model that they had shot um, was not really cinematic, I guess the best way to put it. So I drew these storyboards, which I thought would be much better, and then they asked if I could rebuild the model so we could reshoot it to, do, to match the boards. I said, Absolutely. So I took this job on, and I had no studio. I had no space. So I'm like, okay, great. I'm now taking this money from from Fox, and say I'm going to deliver on this job. i got to find a way to do it. So I went over to Matthew's uh, studio, his uh, prop studio, which was in Culver City. I said, here, I've got a job. You've got a space. Let's make lots of money. It's like the old uh, Pet Shop Boys song. And, and so that job was sort of our sort of first actual you know job together and so while we were (laughs) this is kind of fun so while we were doing the bombay for broken arrow working out of his space shannon uh, my other partner was going to usc at the time and she was in the in the entrepreneurship program there and she'd written a paper on starting a small business and so here we are, two guys in a space, and and she's like, well, let me take what I've done at school and let's apply it and let's start a company. And it really was that sort of simple, very straightforward wow. genesis. And so um, we got done with uh, Broken Arrow, and then uh, we found a space in, in Maria Del Rey, um, which was next door to the studio that we eventually took over. So we were 100 Grafsner for a bit. And um, one of the jobs, I worked at this place called uh, VIFX, because VIFX is also doing some of the work for Broken Arrow. So I ended up being like the standby model maker for one of the shots there. And then uh, we did the Bombay job. And then VI had gotten asked to bid work for a show called The Arrival. Not Arrival, which is the... The Arrival, which is a, a <laughs> Charlie Sheen movie. And so they'd known I'd done some storyboards. So they said, well, do you want to meet with a director and maybe draw the storyboards of the visual effects? So I met with a director named David Tui, and we got along. 
And I did some boards for that. And we ended up building some models for that when we became under Gratzner. And after the arrival, he had uh, gotten a script and rewrote it to direct uh, for a movie that eventually got known as uh, Pitch Black. I think it was called Boneyard when it was originally brought to us or something like that. And the, the title hadn't been sort of solidified, but it eventually became Pitch Black. And, um, and this was very early on. He came to us and Matthew and myself, and we sat in a room together, and he talked about this opening scene for the movie. And he wanted to save this spaceship crash because uh, it's a very pivotal part where the spaceship's in, in space. It gets uh, micrometeorites hit it, and it malfunctions, and it crashes on a planet. Now these people are stranded on the planet. And it didn't have a big budget, so they wanted to come up with a way that was an effective way to do this crash that they could still do for the money. And uh, so we started talking, and I knew David knew movies really well. And, uh, you know, we started talking. We mentioned, uh, of all things, Foreign Correspondent, which is this Alfred Hitchcock movie. And in uh, Foreign Correspondent, there's a scene where a seaplane crashes into the water. And what they did was they shot an RP screen out the window. And then when it crashed, they dumped water into the set. And it sinks. And it's all done from inside. And it's all very scary and effective because... You don't need to see the crash from the outside. You see it from the point of view of the passengers and the pilot. Sure. So scarier. we're yeah, scarier. So yeah. we're throwing that around. And so what David came up with was this quick cutting intersecting uh, sequence where the spaceship's coming down. So we see the exterior of the spaceship and our pilot is now jettisoning pieces of it to get it lighter so that she can land it and not crash the thing. And of course the scary part is, is that the cargo she's ejecting some of the cargo are human beings that, that are literally like in these pods that look like they're on racks, look like slabs of beef, right? That was Matthew's like, let's make them look like slabs of beef. So, um, so they're on these pods and they're on these racks and the, and, it, and the cargo is no longer human. It's just cargo that she has to get rid of to, to save herself. So it, it, I boarded that altogether um, based on David's script to get this really tight intercutting moments like that and then the final crash again we didn't just cut to the outside we go into the cockpit and the, it comes you know the dirt comes through the window and engulfs the pilot and the ship tears apart from inside and one of the passengers is inside and seeing what happens so it is scary it is more effective uh to do it from that point of view and yes it was a budget concern but it really became a very effective uh, creative solution Right. I mean, sometimes that's the best, right? When mm -hmm. sometimes money can can actually be a negative <laughs> to have. When? <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're forced to come up with a right. solution like that, yeah. you may not have thought of that until yeah. that point. But, but yeah, no, I, you know, it's like the. Uh, Anyone that says that is wishful <laughs> thinking. <laughs> no, but you're right. Yeah, you're right. Producing. You're producing. Yeah, exactly. It's a creative solution. Um, there's a point of this whole story, which is. When we made the arrival, uh, the, the, the company, there's a company in Mexico, which is run by aliens who are using global warming to, to change the climate of the planet because the aliens want to oh, live in it. It's, it's their fault. It. They want a more humid, warmer climate. So they're uh, making the earth more humid and warmer. And Charlie Sheen discovers this. And, uh, as but as, as he does. And the name of the, I think it was like Omnicorp. It was like this the fake name of the of the 
alien company that was destroying the earth was Omnicorp, right? So they were going to have people wearing Omnicorp badges and Omnicorp on the doors and everything like this. And somewhere along the way, they discovered there was an actual Omnicorp, right? So I was like, we really can't do that. So, so they had to change the name for the movie. So when we made Pitch Black, a sort of similar thing happened in that David didn't want to have any legal issues with the name, I guess the, you know, the ship or whatever. So I'm sitting there and my partner, Matthew and I had this great sort of, uh, partner's desk that we built and he's sitting ab- across from me, like where you are right now. And he gets this phone call. And he's like, uh-huh. Yeah. 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 That sounds good. Yeah. Just send the paperwork. Yeah. I'll sign it down. Yeah, no worries. Okay. Bye. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? It's like, oh, it's Tui. He wants to know if we can use our name, you know, for the, for the company or whatever for, in the movie. I'm like, yeah, that sounds really fun. Well, I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't really get exactly what had happened, but it turns out the name of the spaceship in Pitch Black is the Hunter Gratzner. And literally the guy's like, this is a hundred, you know, merchant vessel Hunter Gratzner. We're, you know, mayday, mayday. We're going down. We're going down. And he's actually calling that out. Uh, Owens is the name of the character in the movie. Awesome. So it's kind of funny. So we're, we are the Hunter Gratzner. And there's like fan fiction written of the, you know, the, the, the journeys of the Hunter Gratzner and all this stuff that's sort of out there. It's kind of creepy. But yeah, so we're the Hunter Gratzner. That's kind of nice. Um, what would you say was um, one of your favorite or most favorite experiences working on a film? Pitch Black was actually one of the more enjoyable ones because we were so involved from the beginning creatively and we're able to see that through. So I think that's a that's a good one in that we were really utilized to our best abilities. Um, I got to board the scenes. We involved with the director to come up with the sequence. Uh, Matthew designed the spaceship. So, so, and when, then we got to photograph it. So, so for us, that was one of the first jobs where we really got a lot of creative uh, input and reliance. Um, I think that's a really good one. Um, Balls of Fury, I'm really happy about. <laughs> you think, Balls of Fury, really? I said, no. But Balls of Fury, we came... We were called in by, uh, have you ever seen the movie, Balls of Fury? It's it's Enter the Dragon, but with ping pong, which is fantastic. So so, uh, so the producers called us in, and they were making this movie, and it's, again, low-budget comedy, and they want to end with this sort of James Bond villain's lair that blows up, okay? And like, what can we do? So they had very little money, and we had very little time, and they said, what can you, you know, can you just give us some elements of exploding parts of this building and it's this uh, I think it's abandoned now but it was a Japanese restaurant in at Universal Studios <laughs> that they were shooting as the exterior so we had to build a model of it and then blow it up and originally it was just going to be elements but I thought well, this is going to be fun it was no there's no expectations right yes. so so we had eight days eight actual days and we built this model of the um restaurant which was supposed to be the palace of christopher walken and we set that up outside and we set it up on a on a hillside that we made from scrap rock from another job and covered it in ivy and everything and then we spent the day just blowing the hell out of it and you know little by little less of it was there until we had nothing left and the producers were so thankful for what we'd done and that was the thing too it was like from the few times i've had someone really grateful for what we had accomplished was <laughs> so little so that funny enough is a, is a job i really like because of the just because of the appreciation and because of the the sort of 
Iron Chef quality. Like, you have eight days to build, you know, palace and destroy it. Like, okay, we can do this. And everyone just pulled together and we got it done. So that was fun. Uh, Pitch Black, we mentioned. I've worked on the on some Christopher Nolan movies. That's really nice. I feel like in Interstellar, there wasn't supposed to be as many model shots as there ended up mm-hmm. being because when they saw them, I think he was just enamored by what you guys were able to accomplish. Well... Chris is a filmmaker who likes to shoot things for real as much as he can. You know, I've sort of joked about that movie. If he had the budget, he would have shot it in space if he could have gotten away with it. Um, So he likes to shoot stuff for real. He likes what we call happy accidents, which is where, like, the destruction of the building and inception and the uh, stuff that we've done in the Dark Knight movies, you know, where where you're basically setting up a scenario. You're setting up a simulation, and we're getting cameras on it, and we're almost like documentarians. And we're now shooting this and what happens happens now certainly we do a lot of testing we're trying to go for a, a specific goal but there are things that happen naturally that you would get from a real stunt so that's what we expect to do in the miniature world so so he likes that sort of result he likes that sort of um i shouldn't speak for him but like i feel he likes this sort of organic uh sense that you get from creating a scenario like that so when we started on in on interstellar Paul Franklin, who was the VFX supervisor from DNEG, who was running this show, and I'd worked with Paul before. On, in fact, he was <laughs> dealt with Paul way back on on uh, Dark Knight, and uh, he'd been part of DNEG uh, back on Pitch Black. Um, he had come out with the idea that he would shoot majority of the shots as digital shots for the spaceships, and uh, fewer shots would be done as miniatures. But when we started shooting, by the time we started getting a rhythm going with the photography, and we were able to shoot uh, relatively quickly as as motion control goes, we were turning more shots around, and this ratio changed. Uh, He assumed he was going to use more digital shots and fewer miniature shots, and by the end of the movie, the majority of the the spaceship shots are miniatures, and the... Uh, lesser shots, I shouldn't say lesser shots, but the f- fewer, fewer shots, shots thank you, uh, are, are digital. And uh, part of that was a creative decision that uh, Chris Nolan did, which was we had a previs to follow, and D-Negative had a very meticulous set of previs animations for all the shots, and we worked out a system with them where we could line up the camera very precisely to the digital frame and the physical frame, and then run the camera and repeat the move so that we could frame accurately match what was shot on the uh, virtual CG previs version of the shot. And we shot for a week that way, and we were really proud that we'd finally gotten this, this system to work together, and we were and Dean Egg and us were collaborating to get this uh, to work. And uh, Paul Franklin came to us and said, you know, he talked to Chris and he'd seen the shots and he asked if we were following the previs. And we said, to the frame, it's frame accurate matching to the previs. We were following it very precisely. And Chris Renolan told Paul, we'll stop doing that. Like, what? It's like <laughs> previs is something that a previs artist like has to get out the door right. and he's trying to get it done. And he's trying to get it to editorial so they can cut it together. And he doesn't have the benefit of looking at the model. He doesn't have it in front of him. Sure. And so what what uh, Christopher Nolan wanted to do was, you guys are there, you've got the model, and if you find a better angle, a better shot that tells the story, so the previs is telling you what the story needs to be, but if you find something that works better for the story and tells it in a more cinematic, compelling way, 
do that instead, shoot that. And that freed us up. And now my camera operator, who's this amazing motion control camera operator, Joshua Kushner, like could actually be a camera operator. And my DP could like, you know, really get into it, uh, Tim Angulo. So, so we actually started shooting much faster on Interstellar than we had originally uh, thought we were going to. And because of that, we were able to turn over more shots. And that's the ratio sort of started switching over. And there's a lot of stuff in that that's practical too. There's the fifth scale Ranger spaceship and we're literally dropping burning steel wool on it and salt and all these other things, you know, that are actually happening in camera. And that mix of organic effects and digital effects, I think, really make that movie special. I mean, the, you know, I didn't have anything to do with it, but the, but the cre- uh, creation of Goliath, which is the, the is it Goliath? The robot guy? No, 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 the, the, the black hole. Oh, the black hole. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is. Um, it's all practical, right? That was a big practical. <laughs> no, it's not. Black hole. It's a practical black hole. So <laughs> we we just kept throwing money into it and eventually became a black hole and sucked all the light in. So that's, that's how films work. You just put a lot of money in and it becomes a black hole and then you shoot it. Um, but anyway, that was a that was a pretty amazing effect. And then, but it's funny you you mentioned. Um, Going back to First Man and about having it really there and like how it affects the performances. So TARS. Uh, that was the robot. Yeah. The TARS robot. Yeah. Uh, that's Bill Irwin, uh, who is an amazing uh, comic and, and physical performer. And um, they'd built a physical, you know, puppet, puppet. if yeah. you will. And it was nicknamed the Walking uh, File Cabinet. And. Um, but Bill Irwin was behind it, and he was attached to it, and so he could actually operate it. So it worked and moved through the movie, and it's his voice. He's the performer. He's speaking Tars's lines, and he's also performing the robot, which, again, is just this big blocky thing. But having him there and having a performer who has a sense of humor and can improv, Matthew McConaughey would interact with him. So he had someone actually to talk to, like we're doing right now. And there's a bit in it where where McConaughey's saying, you know, you know, Slick, you got to you know take it down a little bit or whatever. Slick wasn't in the script, you know. There's things in the script, but there were things that were not in the script that were just coming from Matthew McConaughey having someone to interact with. And so there's a big difference again between not just having a tennis ball on a C stand <laughs> or having an actor you can actually relate to, and it affects the performances. So it's funny you bring up Interstellar because there's all these, you know, I mentioned Pitch Black and Balls of Fury. And, um, but we made Interstellar and the movie's done and we go to the, a cruise screening and the lights come up and we finally sort of, uh, my partners and I reconnect, you know, in the, in the, uh, aisle way. And, uh, she's going to hate that I say this, but, uh, Shannon Gans, my partner comes up to me and tears are running down her face and we've been together for, for years doing this together. And she looks at me and says, you know, of all the things that we've worked on, at least we can say we worked on that. You know, on Interstellar. We worked on Interstellar. So whatever else happens, we worked on Interstellar. And and that's going to be forever, you know. And uh, and it's a very polarizing movie because I, <laughs> I hope you liked it. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, no, I've run into people, run into people who are like, what do you think? And I'm just like, oh, I hated it. Like, okay, well, that tells me all I need to know about you. <laughs> and then, like, you run into people like, oh, I loved it. It's so amazing. And it's a very polarizing movie. 
And uh, I actually uh, did a pilot for a show many years ago. Um, well, not that many years ago. It was after Interstellar. But um, I ran into a guy who's from Spain named Vladimir. And um, and he found out that I worked on Interstellar. He's like, oh, this is my greatest movie. It's affected my life. And, blah, 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 blah. and I said, well, you know the Endurance, the spaceships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, it's a clock. And his eyes just like went wild like it's all about time and he said yeah it's about time you know the, the endurance is the face of a clock it's 12 segments and it's got this big you know like hand more or less coming out so, right <laughs> i don't know if any, like i right off the bat I'm like that's a big clock but um but yeah so it's all about time it's all about like you know reinforcing the idea about of, of that and that's a sort of common thing that happens in christopher Nolan movies where he is fluid with the uh telling of the story it's not all linear uh i think the underrated uh prestige i think is this way too oh, i love the prestige yeah. i think that's his uh, my favorite movie of his i've watched it I mean, <laughs> it's like i call it, it's like what did we do this summer because it's all the it's all the same people from batman but you know let's play let's put on some yeah. different costumes yeah else. but no i love that movie too and and it's and it's all told out of time but then when when it's wrapped up at the end it's like oh now it all flows together and makes sense. And but it also that and also Interstellar. I mean, they're the kind of movies that you almost have to watch multiple times because it, it takes a while to really get the detail of what's going on, especially in Interstellar, because it can mm-hmm. go way over your head if you're you know miss five seconds of it. Uh, and I, I just love that about his movies because I do watch them over and over again. There's not very many these days that mm-hmm. come out that you do that with, right? I mean, there's so much content. Yeah, it's hard. It's easy to just go next, you know. Yeah, done and seen. Yeah, yeah. moved on. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's funny. Been a part, I mean, a huge part of it. I mean, all of those shots. I mean, I'm just I'm watching the movie and I forget. I mean, I saw you there doing it, <laughs> and I forget. I'm like I'm in space right now. You know, it's like you. It, it looks so good, and I don't know. I want to. I want to uh, bring this up. And you can tell me if I have to edit it out. Uh, <laughs> But uh, there's a model maker secret that um, that I love to tell other people about, which is that uh, there's always an R two D two somewhere. On oh, okay. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, where is this right. going? Is this a well, no, I know my my particular one, but um, <laughs> yeah, the R two D two thing. I mean, I I've been involved in some of that too. Um, I think that goes back to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. If um, if you watch that, the guys who had worked on Star Wars, a lot of them had then, when Star Wars was done shooting the model work, went to work on Close Encounters. Because Close Encounters came out months later, so there was still some work to be done on Close Encounters. And the mothership, which is the big ship at the end of Close Encounters that comes over the Devil's Tower and flips over, and it's spectacular, looks gigantic with all these lights and everything, the big dome shape. When it comes up over the top of Devil's Tower the first time, Melinda Dillon, the actress, the blonde actress who's the mother of the kid, she looks back, and as it comes over the top of the mountain, if you look very carefully, there's an R2-D2 that's upside down with a red light in its head, right? And it was just kind of stuck on there as a joke by the model makers, and that sort of became a staple on miniatures that R2-D2 would show up on a lot of models, so different models throughout the years had r2d2 so i knew about this and so actually in in the citizen kane of of superhero movies batman and robin 
there's actually there's there's this big uh, uh, observatory that gets blown up at the end, and uh, one of our model makers, I had him put like an R two D two like up on the column. Again, you would never find it, but you know I, we know it's there. I thought you were going to mention my particular stupid. Uh... I don't know if I know it. Oh it's well, okay. So all right, so we got to go back to Total Recall. So <laughs> I work on Total Recall and. I was there for off and on for over a year working on this thing. And there's all these models and they're very difficult to build. And all these guys, it's great job from scratch building the, the Martian landscape and the city of Mars and the alien artifacts. And I built the, the, uh, Mars liner, which is the shuttle that takes Arnold to the planet, all this stuff. So we're working on all these models. And at the very end, that shot I mentioned where we have to pull out of the window and we see all the buildings. Well, somewhere along the way, when we got the contract, or Mark got the contract to build those models, it was specified as one scale. And the company that was shooting them thought they were going to be a different scale. So when the models showed up, they were a bit smaller than they had imagined for this RP shot of the people walking out of the window. So we had to quickly come up with a way of expanding the scale of the models without actually physically making new models. So the thing we came up with was, well, we'll add handrails and ladders and doors and windows and stuff to make them look bigger. So instead of it being a five-story building, it'll be a two-story building, but with the, the appropriate size doors and windows and stuff like that. So we started scrambling and throwing all this bigger architecture on the model, architectural details to make the scales larger. And... We had only a day or so to get this done. It's the last model to shoot. And I thought, well, it'd be look, what would look really great is like a, a propane farm on top of one of the buildings. So these propane tanks. And you've seen propane tanks around all over. They're just cylinders. So I'm like, what can I do to make these propane tanks? So I grabbed, literally grabbed a bunch of Coke cans. And I stuck uh, domes on the ends and hatches and ladders and everything like this. So from the camera side, it looked like a legitimate... Uh, propane farm, right? It was all painted and rusted and it looked really good. But from the backside, you could still see where the, the tabs were. I didn't use full ones. I drank them all and so, <laughs> so you see the tabs are. So after working on this movie for a year, off and on, they find that the EPK crew finally shows up, the electric press kit people show up and this girl shows up with a camera, walks into the stage, walks to the back of the model. The first thing she sees is six Coke cans in a row with the tabs open like that. And so she came up to me and started asking me about, like, well, how is it to build models? And uh, I said, well, it's great. You know, we worked on this for years. Like, oh, so it's all made of, like, Coke cans and popsicle sticks, right? And I'm like, no, honey. <laughs> it's like it's really hard work, and it's all scratch belt. And you happen to show up when the day that I'm working on this thing and I'm scrambling and I got Coke cans. Like, so I was so annoyed, so pissed off. So we ended up shooting another shot, which was this big wide shot of Mars. And it's Arnold and Rachel Ticketon are standing there. And it's all now blue skies on Mars. And he's like, oh, it's amazing. You know, blue skies on Mars. And then um, and then she says, you know, kiss me before it's over or whatever. And uh, and they kiss, right? And that's the big climax of the movie. But if you look out on the, on the plains of Mars, on the right-hand side, is very clearly a Coke can that I just sprayed. And, and there's nothing... Nothing like it's gray. That's it, right? But there's no there's no other detail on it. It's clearly a Coke can. Of course, you're paying attention to, to Arnold's amazing acting, so you never really want to. 
You know, I mean, they're really, no, but you honestly, you're just looking at them. You're not looking at the Coke can. But I point that out to people now. They're like, oh my God, it's just a Coke can. So from then on, I've always stuck a Coke can somewhere on all my models. So integrating it. So yeah, throughout the, throughout the years, there's been Coke cans popping up. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) They're they're coming. They're now over the house, taking them away. (laughs) Well, uh, overall as a, as a filmmaker, because really that's what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're taking uh, an idea and taking it all the way through to the end. I mean, a lot of these times, especially like Broken Arrow and things like that, it's like, look, and, and Chris Nolan even says, look, this is what we started with. You give us a real shot. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you're a filmmaker and you know, you've got projects that you're hopefully going to be directing soon. Uh, and one of the things with this podcast is, you know, hopefully we're inspiring new filmmakers to not come to this town. Right. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of us here that need to get things done. We don't need any more, more uh, competition. <laughs> but no, uh, you know, if, if there's any advice that you had for any upcoming filmmakers, what would you say to them? Oh, gosh. You know, it's funny because I've talked to a lot of people that have started out and they go to film school and things like that. And the first thing I say to them is, that's great. But if you can, become a PA and get on a set and just learn from that point of view, the, the position of a PA to observe how movies are made because that education is going to be much more important than anything you learn in school, sorry to say. Um, there's a lot of theory and there's a lot of like sort of habits that get taught at film schools. And then people come out of those and they're having these great ambitions that are going to like jump right in to be directors or writers right off the bat. And that's not true. And so they need to they need to get that experience. They need to go on set, and they need to see how it's really done. Especially today, with the speed of technology mm-hmm. and how fast things change, and not the professors aren't necessarily staying up with that. Right. So you might go on stage and you know think you know what you're doing, and then there's like, what is that thing over there? Well, that's the camera now. You know, it doesn't look like the one you had in film school. Uh, funnily enough, I I did something very similar. I I went to college. I didn't go to film school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when I came out here, I, I became a PA. And I actually, my first job was for Jonathan Sanger, who's the father ah, of David Sanger. My who, producer, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Such a small world out here. I'll say this, too, if you're going to get into the business. Um, it's a hard business. Not everyone's going to make it. And the only way you you stay in it and continue to rise, if you're going to rise into it, is to stick with it. Um I've been super fortunate. I'm, I, I don't. I say this with sincerity. I've been very fortunate that I've ended up actually winning not one but two Oscars, and that's sort of an achievement. And sort of, sort of yes. <laughs> and for people to be in this business to get to that level uh, is a is a con- considerable thing. And uh, I always think of Richard Branson right now because someone asked Richard Branson if he felt lucky or if he was lucky and he said what do you mean by luck and and they said well you know that you're very successful and you're a billionaire or whatever and he said well i'm lucky if you define luck as when perseverance meets opportunity and i think that's what my career is all about is like you know i've been doing this for a while uh i've been consistently trying to do the best job i can I've been consistently working with people that I trust and believe in and think that do good work also. And so as you, if you continue to do good work and you have integrity, 
and you, people keep coming back to you because they can trust you and believe you, eventually you get working with better people and better projects, and eventually you get to a point where you're working on something like uh, Interstellar, as a for instance, and that turned out to be a fortuitous thing where we happened to be at the right place at the right time to make this movie, which got well-received in the visual effects realm, and we ended up winning uh, the Academy Award. But Balls of Fury was part of that step <laughs> to get to, <laughs> to to Interstellar, you know. Um, you know, so, it's, so uh, it's all part of the process, but it's about perseverance meeting opportunity. If you don't persevere, if you don't stick with it, you're never going to get to a position where you can take that opportunity. So I think that's what I want to say to somebody, too, is like, don't give up. Um, find your heroes, find your yeah. mentors. I mean, ever since I met you, I mean, whether you like it or not, you've been a mentor <laughs> to me. You know, watching in the life. negative, like, <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> I've, I've had the, uh, the absolute luxury to have been on a few of your sets, mm. you know, like to help with Wolf of Wall Street and some commercials and a few other projects. And just, just being there and watching you work uh, is it's been huge for me, you know, see that level of detail, see that level of focus and, uh, the end result, you know, and seeing what you get for mm -hmm. the end result. Yeah. I mean, um, it's amazing. And thank you, by the way. Oh, absolutely. Me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I buzz the buzzer. <laughs> hey, hey, the, uh, the sandbags shown up again. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Hope the sandbag won't eat too much of the craft service, but that's horrible. But no, uh, yeah, any, anyone who, who, who contributes, who all of us working towards this, you know, the same goal, which is to get something on screen that we can be proud of, you know, is welcome. And, uh, and if you have that attitude, if you, if you, and that's the other thing too. I mean, I hope people are getting in this business, understand this. There's not many people that get to do this and it's a really great job. I mean, <laughs> come on, you're, you're, you're making movies, you know, <laughs> It's so funny, when I started this podcast, initially the idea was, because uh, I'm trying to get into television directing, or just uh, just have television directors on here. So I did a lot of research. Not that many television directors. Mm. And when I started trying to contact them. Well, they're only they're only like 44 minutes, so who <laughs> 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 can do that? Well, I, try, <laughs> I try to contact them, and they're all working. Mm. I mean, that's, there's not, uh, you know. It's like I'm surprised I can get you every once in a while to. Yeah, that's the thing too. And two producers, I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to like not get these film or these TV directors not to be able to work. But you're right though. There's a lot of there's a lot of content being done now, and they need people to provide that content. So so they really need to, to start looking beyond just you know the IMDb page that shows that this guy's done this and this guy's done this and this girl's done this or whatever. And and look at some of these other people that are wanting to get into it and do more of this. And, you know, the opportunities there, they really need to provide more opportunity for people who have a creative voice and give them the chance to do it. I mean, I've been fortunate. I've been working in visual effects. And, like, the thing in visual effects is, like, hey, uh, we need the end of the movie, and we don't know what it is, but it needs to be spectacular and incredible and... Uh, cost effective and done in time. You know, that's why uh, we use the Tim Miller example. You know, Tim Miller did uh, Deadpool, and he's the perfect person to do it because he comes from being a visual effects supervisor and and uh, game designer, all these other things that he does, an animator, 
And his his mantra is: you got to be creative. You got to come up with something no one's ever seen before, and you have no time and very little money. And so it's it's that triangle: good, fast, and cheap. And you have to meet all three. No, but see, that's the thing: is visual effects. You have to meet all three because it has to be good. You can't not be good. And there's always never money, right? Right. And by the time they make a decision, there's no time. So, so, uh, so it's sort of like it's it's sort of like being a fremen from Dune. You know, you're sort of trained in the most severe conditions to become a filmmaker in visual effects. So anyway, so yeah, so there's a lot of opportunity out there. There should be more opportunity out there uh, to expand the roles of people who are creative to now, you know, give them the next level well, yeah. of creativity. Well, I mean, yeah, that's how you got Spielberg and Lucas and De Palma and all those guys when they finally were given the chance to mm-hmm. young people coming out. And... I, I've had the, the, the nice opportunity very briefly to work with David Fincher. Well, David Fincher's background is he was a camera operator, I believe, at ILM. You know, he has... You know, he's a creative guy that that has a hands-on ability, and certainly, you know, it's you know, he's certainly his uh, personality and his drive is what's gotten him where he is. But you know, they have that background. Uh, Christopher Nolan used to do almost everything on his on his first movies. You know, he was set decorator, loading the camera, and all. You know, so they have this ability to know what the other guy's job is. And they come from backgrounds like that. Frank Darabont was a set dresser. These people are all creative, all wonderful directors, all wonderful storytellers, but they have that hands-on experience and then they're able to, to apply that to their, their uh, storytelling, their craft. And uh, I just think that, yeah, it'd be nice if, if we were allowed to... Open to oh, open. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Especially for you. I mean, if anybody looks at your reel, I mean, it's like shots from like the biggest movies ever so it's not it's not even just that that. you've done uh great work but you've also worked within the studios where Mm -hmm. you know you've got to deal with the politics you know it's all the same thing with with television and 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 big feature films where it's not just the work it's also having to deal with the politics of it and the studio and all of that and you have that experience as well so what's the what's the hold up you know it's It's me it's really me no yeah i I, I, I gotta apply yeah it's not you it's me (laughs) Uh, but yeah, if that's something, um, I, I hope that that, ex- that opportunity uh, comes and I hope I can grab it when it's there. The thing is, though, and, and to your point before about how, you know, what drew you into Junior Crew was that it's about this group of kids that when they all think, when they all work together and they have a common goal, they can achieve great things. Mm-hmm. Against uh, you know odds that like <laughs> seemed impossible for them exactly. to even overcome. Which is essentially what we're doing in this in the yeah. film industry. It's like you've got a, a foot in the door because of visual effects, like literal, like two Oscars. Like you could just you should just mm-hmm. walk in at the meeting. <laughs> right? Can I direct your show, please? <laughs> uh, you know, and and different ones of us that we all know each other, uh, and we're all sort of teammates, and we're all kind of working toward that common goal of let's all get there and and do this together because we know what it's like to work together Mm -hmm. and that's half the battle is finding people that you want to work with that you respect that you trust that they know what they're doing and that they're filmmakers at heart and it's not about the money it's about the final product so all of you that are listening to this let's meet let's 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 meet at the new formosa and get a plan together and go across the street to uh to the the lot and uh and take it over i'm sure we could burn it down no, that would be <laughs> we need the stages 
<laughs> well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate talking and going over my career, and I hope it's been inspirational to others, and I hope people stick with it, and I hope there's others out there that inspire me. I see your work in the future, and, uh, and I get to be thrilled as much as you do, too. So thanks. That just about does it for this episode of The Call Sheet. I'm your host, AJ Wedding. You can follow me on Instagram for more information about The Call Sheet at that director AJ. See you next time.